I had the privilege uh, to attend three or four different classes here today. I think you are among the luckiest students in the entire United States. It's, this is an extraordinary place. If I could go back in time, I would like to attend this wonderful place. I'm not sure I could make it, but I'd sure like to try. I want to talk tonight about an epical period in our country's history. 13 years, really, from 1978 to 1991, when the whole world changed. I'm not a scholar. I'm not an historian. I'm not a sociologist. And I'm certainly not a theologian. So I'm talking to you only about things that uh, were direct experience. It began in 1978, this period. What was the world like in 1978? In 1978, the world faced in what was then the Soviet Union, a country that was hugely powerful militarily, armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons, had an impassioned idea about how the world, the entire world should be governed, the communist system. They were tightly disciplined, totally dedicated, and they meant to undermine and get rid of what we would call Western civilization. And that's what the world faced in 1978. That was literally what the situation was. What happened? In October of 1978, the then Pope, Paul VI, died. And as you know, because you went through it last year, when John Paul II died, when a pope dies in the structure of the Catholic Church, all of the cardinals in the world go to Rome. And 10 days after the pope's death, they're sealed, literally sealed, in a portion of the Vatican. And they're there to elect a pope. It doesn't have to be, but Traditionally, it has been, for probably a thousand years, that they have chosen a cardinal, which means that the next pope is right in there with you. And they meet, and they're in a sealed session, and those men in 78 were under an enormous psychological, traditional pressure. For 450 years, imagine that. For 450 years, every single pope, without exception, had been an Italian cardinal made pope. So when they came from all over the world and were locked away in the Vatican, what did they do? No one really knows what they did because they're under grave moral stricture not to talk about it. But there are certain things we can assume that they did because any of us in this room in such a situation would have done it. They talked, they gossiped, they politicked, they reviewed, they prayed, and being men of tradition, they probably made a short list of the Italian cardinals. <laughs> and remember that those Italian cardinals were all in there with them. And then they elected a pope. And the pope they elected 
was the Cardinal Archbishop of Venice. And in the tradition of the Catholic Church, when such an election occurs, the senior cardinal goes to the cardinal who has been elected and says, in some traditional phrase in Latin, you have been elected pope, do you accept? And that cardinal must say the single word, accepto. And at that split second becomes Peter, becomes the pope. And then they say, in a second question, a traditional question, also in Latin, by what name will you be called? The Cardinal Archbishop of Venice, having been a great admirer of his two immediate predecessors, John Paul XXIII, excuse me, John XXIII, and Paul VI, put the two names together and said, I will be called John Paul. But because there'd never been a John Paul, he became John Paul I. And all the cardinals were probably greatly relieved, and they all went home. And that was in 1978, in this hugely tense situation in the world, electing one of the pivotal figures of Western civilization. 33 days later, and the world has completely forgotten about this, Something like this happened. A cardinal in Los Angeles, or a cardinal in Brazil, or a cardinal in Calcutta might have been awakened at 2 a.m. in the morning by his Monsignor secretary, who might have said something like, Eminence, don't get up. Go back to sleep. I'll pack your bag. The limo will be here at 9 o'clock in the morning to take you to the airport. The Pope has died. You're going to Rome. 33 days later, the newly elected Pope had died. All the cardinals go back to Rome. But every one of us would know that that second conclave was psychologically a totally different thing than the first conclave. In the first place, Paul VI had been pope for 16 years. And you generally don't make cardinal until later in life. So in that first conclave, the cardinals from around the world, many of them had not been a cardinal 16 years ago. And thusly, they didn't know the drill, even what went on in a conclave except to read in their book. They'd never been in a conclave. But in the second one, they had all been in the conclave. They'd all talked. They'd all gossiped. They'd all prayed. They all had considered. And they probably all had made a short list of the Italian cardinals. <laughs> no one knows exactly what happened. But they did something stunning. They broke a tradition of 450 years of Italian cardinals made pope. And they elected a, an archbishop from Poland as pope. He was from Krakow, the second city in Poland. behind the Iron Curtain. He had some extraordinary qualifications. For example, in the West at that time, under this huge, staggering specter of communism, remember that no one in the West, not the Chancellor of Germany, not the President of the United States, not the Prime Minister of Great Britain, had ever lived under communism. They knew it purely theoretically as a sociological and moral and political negative phenomenon. And they understood that, but they'd never lived under it. 
The man who had been elected pope, a Polish Slav, had had to shepherd his flock against street communism for 30 years. When he was a very young man, he'd gone to Krakow University, and at that time, the Nazis ran Poland. And he was vice president of the secret student society against the Nazis. But very quickly, when Germany lost, Stalin and company moved in. And he had to shepherd his flock from street communism for 30 years. He knew it in an extraordinary way. He had a lot of other unusual qualifications. For example, he had a superb talent as a linguist. And that's very important in his papacy and in the evolution of things in the world for reasons I'll refer to in a moment. By having a talent as a linguist, what I mean is this. He spoke nine languages fluently. That is to say, he could have a very serious conversation in those. The languages were fairly obvious. He spoke Polish because it was his native language. He spoke Italian because it's sort of the working language of the church. He spoke English because everybody has to speak English. <laughs> he spoke French for essentially the same reason. And he knew the languages of that sort of indigenous area, namely German, Russian, Lithuanian, that sort of thing. And then a sort of an outside Spanish. I'll, I'll, later on, I'll tell you why that was so important in his presidency. A second thing was cultural. He lived in Central Europe. And Central Europe was on the edge of flames at that time. And remember, it was a nuclear world, very delicately balanced between the forces of the Soviet Union and the forces of the West, which essentially were led by the United States. And the ferment was in Central Europe. Remember that in 56, there was a revolution in Hungary. And then in 68, there was the so-called Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. Things could go terribly wrong, and they were terribly dangerous. The new pope was of that culture, of those people, of that part of the world, and had lived under it, and he knew it viscerally. He was immensely different from a triple PhD, holy, saintly, Italian, cardinal, made pope. This was a whole new situation. And the world was stunned. Of course, when they went up to him and said in the conclave, uh, probably uh, the same Latin phrase, uh, you have been elected pope, do you accept? And he said, accepto, and by what name will you be called? He said, John Paul. But because there had just been a John Paul I, he became John Paul II. His private name was Wurstila. Uh, the whole world was stunned. And the Soviet Union was more than stunned. They just didn't know what to do. How do they handle this, such a situation? He moved to Rome, and the world and all of the people in the world who were Catholics with a particular focus had a new pope. That was 1978. In 1979, that new pope made his first of what it turned out would be, what, 95 foreign trips. And where did he go? Well, where would you go? Poland was the first place he went, back to his own Poland. Poland that had lived under tragedy and abuse and terror for a very long time. 
and now one of their own had been elected pope. And so when he went to Poland, the Polish people went crazy. Millions of them out in the street, cheering, crying, all of that for the new Polish pope, one of them, one of their own. A huge change in the world. Another curious thing happened at that time. There arose in Poland a figure who was very important in what looked like a small role, but it was a very important role. His name was Lech Walesa. And Lech Walesa in 79 was an unemployed electrician. And he worked or had worked at the Gdansk shipyard, which is the Polish shipyard on the Baltic. And he had been instrumental in forming what any of us would call a blue-collar union. They called it solidarity. And what it really was, was an organization of normal Polish workers who wanted desperately to be free. And they had this union that they had to be very careful about, solidarity, and the head of it was this curious figure, Walensa. Walensa was a very unusual man, and he knew everything that was going on in Poland. And that's the pivotal point, because Poland sits right between Russia, Ukraine, and Germany, France, if you will, in this fermenting time. And there is, the Polish people are a strong, tough people. Everything that went on in Poland, Walesa knew. In previous years, that wouldn't have meant a great deal in terms of the Vatican, because he wouldn't have had a link with uh, an Italian pope. But one of his own was pope. And all of the information that he had about Poland went directly and immediately into the man in the corner office in the Vatican. That was a small, uh, Walesa went on to become president of Poland. He was an interesting man. He was sort of short and squat. By the way, whenever he walked around, he had a little picture of Mary up in his lapel. And when he walked into a room, it was extraordinary. Poland walked into the room. He just felt it. And so that sort of curious figure but very pivotal figure, because it meant that the man in Rome knew exactly what was going on in that part of Central Europe, which was pivotal to the ferment between the East and the West. Now, that's 79. One year later, in 1980, another extraordinary event occurred. The United States the greatest temporal power on earth held an election. And as you may remember, they elected a grade B movie actor as president of the United States. <laughs> and that was astonishing. But that grade B movie actor, Ronald Reagan, was a very, very unusual man. And I'm going to talk about him in just a moment. But let me just recap for a moment. A period of tremendous danger, a period of tremendous potential change, a period where a misstep could have meant total catastrophe, and the greatest spiritual force on earth, the Catholic Church, had in a very strange way come up with an extraordinary new leader. And the greatest temporal power on Earth had come up in an equally extraordinary way with a very unusual leader, 
and you had these two men on the scene, John Paul II and Ronald Reagan. Then something happened which the world has really forgotten. And no one even thinks about it anymore. But every one of us here tonight would know that it must have been hugely important in those two men. And they were the pivotal men. Here's what happened. Ronald Reagan was sworn in as president in January 20th of 1981. 60 days later, on March 30th, he was shot. And he knew that if that bullet had gone an eighth of an inch differently, he would have died. And that must change you inside forever. One or two little anecdotes about it. When he came out of the hospital and he was in the upstairs of the White House recouping, he told one of his senior aides at a certain point I want to see a very serious religious person. It happened that there had been contact between the White House and Cardinal Cook, then Cardinal Cook of New York, just a few weeks previous. And the person that he talked to knew this and called Cardinal Cook in New York and said, Eminence, the president would like to see someone like you all alone in the White House. Can you come down? And Cook paused and said, yes, when shall I come? And he said, tomorrow. And Cook went down. The only reason that was very unusual is because that was Easter weekend must be the busiest time in all the world for a cardinal. And the next day was Good Friday, which the White House aide wasn't very conscious of. <laughs> so the one time in the year that Cook couldn't do it would be then. Cook went down. And he went in. And all alone, he spent an hour and a half with Reagan. And no one knows what they talked about, except for one part of it. At the very end of it, this aide, his name was Michael Deaver. He was the closest aide to the president. He went up because the president had said, check me in a couple of hours. And he went into the room where the two men were all alone. And he, he wrote this in his memoir. He said, I don't know what they talked about. But as I went into the room, and the president didn't know I was there, there was just he and Cook, I heard Reagan say to Cook, well, I don't know exactly the meaning of all this, but I know that all the rest of my life belongs to God, and there's some reason for it. That's the head of the greatest temporal power on earth, and that's 60 days after he's been elected. And he's a different man. Now, the other great person that had just been elected was John Paul II. So we skip 60 days more from March 30th to May 13th of 1981, and the Pope is shot. exactly the same thing. He knows that if the bullet goes an eighth of an inch, he's a dead man. They race him to Camelli Hospital, and he's known to have said over and over again as he was being raced to the hospital, the Madonna saved me, the Madonna saved me. Well, he was saved. And he went into the hospital. He had a relapse. He was in the hospital for six months. 
one of the things he did in the hospital is this, and this is a matter of common knowledge among those people. Someone said to him, Holiness, do you know that the day that you were shot was May 13th? And May 13th is the day that Mary appeared at Fatima in 1917, the exact day. The Pope, being very Marian, asked for all of the records in the Vatican about the phenomena of Mary's appearance at Fatima in 1917, when she said to those little children in nowhere Portugal, at the very end of Europe, that Russia would rise to be a scourge to the world. That had been validated by a church investigation, which they undertake in such cases, and approved for belief in 1930. And the phenomena of Mary's appearance at Fatima and her very unusual focus on Russia to three little children who didn't even know what Russia was when she first mentioned it. They thought Russia was a woman. <laughs> uh, the Pope, lying in Gemelli, said, I want all the records we have about Fatima, including the 10-year investigation of it and all of that sort of thing. And he is known to have become immensely, immensely focused on Fatima. Now, what have I just said to you? I have said that in 1978 and 1980, essentially back to back, the head of the greatest spiritual force on Earth and the head of the greatest temporal power on Earth had two brand new leaders utterly unexpected types of people. And that as soon as they were in position, almost back to back, both were shot and both knew that their lives had just depended on that. It must change you right down to your roots. And they were the only two leaders in the world at that point who had been shot and we're in power. And the world never talks about that. What happened then? Now, I'm going to move into just some general observations and not take you through any of the detail of things, but just try to paint a picture for you. These two men knew that what they had to do was figure some way to handle this incredible situation of the Soviet Union seeking to undermine and destroy the thousand years of Western civilization. And they had to do it without the world being blown up. What did they do? When you are dealing with a situation like that, you have to deal not with an institution, institution, you have to deal with people. Who did you deal with in the Soviet Union? Now, something quite extraordinary. In 19, the beginning of this period, 19, um, before 78, the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Reed Dictator, was a man named Leonid Brezhnev. Leonid Brezhnev was an old, old man. He wasn't old in years. He was 82. And I'm 81, so. I don't, I don't consider that so damn old. 
But the interesting thing about Leonid Brezhnev is that, you know, when you're in your 80s, you can be 65 or you can be 107. And Leonid Brezhnev was 107. He, was a, he, had to, he walked around like this, and he was a very, very old man. And he was very rigid, and he couldn't imagine any sort of change. How on earth do you deal with such a man? In 1982, he died. And he was succeeded by a man named Andropov. And Andropov was the head of the KGB, their CIA, only bad. <laughs> and Andropov was an old man, and absolutely rigid. And you could no more deal with Andropov with new ideas or change or moderate or anything than deal with the wall. And Andropov, in 84, died. So they were dropping like flies. <laughs> and they, they elected a third dictator in a row, Chernenko, his name was. And Chernenko was older than all of them. <laughs> there were pictures when they tried to take him upstairs. You know, they had to hold his hands on either side and all of that sort of thing. All right, now, why is all of that relevant? A very unusual thing happened. Remember that the Pope had been shot on May 13th. And remember it was brought to his attention that that was Mary's first appearance at Fatima. And remember in his studies it became extremely clear to him that when, what Mary was about at Fatima was that Russia would rise as a scourge. And Mary had given a great sign of hope. She had said, the time will come when a, the Pope and the bishops will dedicate that situation to me. That had been known for a very long time, but no one had really done much about it. In March of 1984, the Pope notified all the bishops of the world. He wanted a significant number of them to come to St. Peter's Square. And they did. He wanted all the rest to know that he was going to put this whole situation in the hands of Mary as Our Lady of Fatima. And that he was going to do this in the presence of her statue, which he would have removed from the very spot in this remote part of Portugal that was a statue of her, where she had appeared. And he ordered that statue for the first time to be removed from there and brought to Rome. And he would have that statue in front of him. And he dedicated this whole situation to her. All right, now let's go back to other things. Remember that I said that Andropov had died in March of 84. Chernenko had been put in right away in March of 84. And in March of 84, the Pope had dedicated the whole thing to Mary as Our Lady of Fatima. One year later, almost exactly, in March of 85, Chernenko drops dead. So now you have Brezhnev, Andropov, and Chernenko, bing, bing, bing. And the Soviet Union does something which in its situation was just as inexplicable as 
the Polish Slavic Pope after 450 years for the church and the great B-movie actor in the United States. They did something absolutely astonishing. They elected a 53-year-old man as general secretary, and actually he was younger. He was like 45, and he was very vigorous. But he was 53. They elected him general secretary, read, dictator of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And his name was Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev was utterly unknown to the West at that point because he'd just been an apparatchik. But now he's numero uno. It turns out that Mikhail Gorbachev was a very, very unusual, complicated man. Mikhail Gorbachev almost immediately said about the Soviet Union, he had a policy that he called perestroika. And he announced it. And perestroika is a Russian word that means restructuring. And restructuring to all of us, of course, means this damn thing isn't working. We've got to try to fix it. <laughs> and you had Gorbachev on scene. And for the first time, there was someone in the Soviet Union that Reagan and John Paul II, in some way, could deal with. That series of phenomenal things that happened in those period is really not looked on by the world, certainly not in the way that we've talked about it tonight. It was absolutely phenomenal. Let me tell you a few little things, and then we'll talk about the end, and then I'm done. Some of the things that are relevant that happened are like this. Ronald Reagan, this great B-movie actor. That great B-movie actor was extraordinary. He was a very unusual, and in my opinion, very possibly a great man. And I don't say that idly. I think he was that good. Ronald Reagan, right away, started to say things in his inimitable way. He said things, he spoke, for example, before the Guild Hall in the British Parliament. And this was at a time when the Soviet Union was a staggering world power, and communism, many people thought, was would last for hundreds of years. He went to the Guildhall, and he made a speech. And in the speech, he said, communism is going to end up on the ash heap of history. That may not sound like much to you now, but that was absolutely stunning then. He then did something even more extraordinary a little later. He went to Orlando, Florida, and he talked to a group in Orlando, Florida, and he said in two words something that changed the foreign policy of the United States. He said, the Soviet Union is an evil empire. Our policy as a, the leading power on Earth for 50 years to the Soviet Union had been something called containment, which means we just want you to stay where you are and not move out. And if you move out, you're going to have trouble with us. And that led to the Korean War. And that seemed like a hopeless policy after a while because you're just trying to push them back but not do anything. And then that policy turned to something called convergence, 
which means they'd gradually move in one direction and we'd gradually move in one direction and we'd meet, we'd find some way that our two systems. And then Nixon was elected president and he took that a step further and had a policy called detente, which means we have to figure out some way to get along. And so for 50 years, our policy had been something called containment or convergence or detente, which were hopeless policies. And then Reagan, in the use of the two words, evil empire, sent a signal out that was hugely important. It may not seem to you so important. At that time, I was chairman of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. And we poured that all through Central Europe and the Soviet Union in 36 languages. Why? Because if, forget empire, that's, that's a, a term without any great significance. Evil, if you call something evil, particularly if you're a leader, it means that you're saying that you have to end this in any rational way you can. You don't want to blow up the world. But if something is evil, and we commonly agree in this room that something's evil, we must do what we can to stop it. We must do what we can to end it. And Reagan sent this movie actor. He sent a signal out to the whole diplomatic corps of the United States. This thing has to end. We're not interested in detente. And we're not interested in convergence. It has to stop. That's what he was saying. That was a radical change in foreign policy terms. And everybody in the government knew it. We poured that all through Central Europe and the Soviet Union and our radios. And people to this day from places like Hungary and Romania and the Soviet Union and Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania and that sort of thing, say when they heard those broadcasts, they cried because they knew for the first time that someone really understood what the situation was and it was no longer going to be uh, agreements uh, served with champagne, uh, that someone knew that it had to end. So, so that's how Ronald Reagan thought. Right now, Reagan and the Pope, how did they deal? The way they dealt was very unusual. Remember I said that John Paul II was a linguist and I would come back to why that was so important? That started a modus operandi with the Pope. Normally, when a Pope meets with someone, he's got a couple of cardinals around him and, you know, very senior aides, and the chief of state is in, has his foreign minister or something, and it's that sort of a meeting. And of course, an interpreter. But the pope, this pope, could meet with almost anyone of an important nature in the world. And because he spoke nine languages, if he didn't speak your language, or you didn't speak his language, it was almost always the case that there was some language among those nine that the two of you spoke together. And he essentially never needed an interpreter. So he established a modus operandi. And the modus operandi was unique among all the great leaders in the world. When he met with someone on a very serious matter, he met all alone. You would take that chief of state or whoever it was up to the door of his library and the door would open and he'd be there and there'd be smiles and the chief of state would go in and the door would close and they were in there all alone. And all the rest of the aides of the chief of state or that sort of thing, you'd go sit in a room nearby and pretend you were very important. <laughs> and then an hour later, an hour and a half later, two hours later, you never knew, a little buzzer would ring. The Pope, by his left hand, underneath his desk, had a little button, and he'd push that button, and that would ring the buzzer. 
and that meant that you could go in. No one went in before that because, of course, you don't, you don't go to the President of the United States and the Pope and tell them their time is up. <laughs> so those, they, when they met, they met in total confidence. And it had a huge advantage. There was never any danger of a leak. They didn't have to be careful of what they said. They didn't have to be worried about something being taken out of context. They could talk in the greatest possible candor. And each man knew things that the other needed to know. Uh, for example, we would know everything that was going on in the Politburo and by sky things. We'd know divisions were moving and all of the stuff that you know. Uh, the Pope knew something immense. He knew what the people were thinking in all of Central Europe because practically all of those people are Catholic. Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Croatia, all Catholic countries, Western Ukraine, and the padre in the town knows what the people are thinking. And what the padre knows, his bishop knows. And what the bishop knows, the cardinal in the capital knows. And what the cardinal knows, Rome knows. So that's why they call the Vatican the world's greatest listening post. So those two men needed each other. And they conferred in absolute privacy now remember when they went into that room and the door closed. Both men knew something. Of course they knew that one was the head of the great spiritual force and the other the great temporal power. They knew that, of course. And they knew all about the Soviet Union and all of that sort of thing. They also knew the other man had been shot. And he was living on borrowed time. And it must have been something extraordinary. And it's something the world doesn't focus on. Well, I'm going to skip on through. Uh, what happened? Uh, Reagan kept on. Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. Uh, the end came. I wanted to paint the scene for you of the extraordinary array of personalities who are absolutely central to what happened. Ronald Reagan, Carol Wojtyla Pope, and Mikhail Gorbachev. The end came in 1991, 13 years after 78. No one, literally no person of any substance in the world in 1978 thought that the Soviet Union wouldn't last decades and decades and decades. And the danger was that when it went in trouble, the world would be blown up. In 1991, Gorbachev decided that the whole system was a mess. Imagine that, the dictator of the Soviet Union. And he decided that the thing just wasn't working. And he decided that he would end it. Now, he would have to end it in his own way. And the way he chose is simply stunning. He would go on television, and he would talk to the Soviet Union, to the people of the Soviet Union. And the day that he chose to do it, and he could have chosen any day, was Christmas afternoon of 1991. Christmas afternoon. Not one of you have ever heard that. The media made nothing of it. And you can read into it whatever you like. And he went on on Christmas afternoon. Now, I've been talking to you ad lib but I don't want to ad-lib Gorbachev. Uh, so he talked in a major talk, and I'm going to just close on exact quotes of his remarks. By the way, the exact words that Reagan 
according to Michael Deaver. Heard Reagan say in the meeting with Cook, I have decided that whatever time I have left is for him. Whatever happens now, I owe my life to God and will try to serve him every way I can. Reagan had a luncheon in June, 60 days later, same time he'd been shot, with Mother Teresa upstairs with Mrs. Reagan present. And Mother Teresa said, there's a purpose to this. This has happened to you at this time because your country and the world needs you. Um, now, what did Gorbachev say? If I can find it. Now remember, he's going on television and he's going to talk to the people of Russia. And it's Christmas afternoon and the whole world is listening. I can't find the damn paper. <laughs> Here it is. This is Gorbachev, 1991. Obviously, I have just taken a few sentences of a major address where everybody in the Soviet Union would have been glued. He said, I hereby discontinue my activities as president of the USSR. Destiny so ruled that when I found myself at the helm of this state, it already was clear that something was wrong. We had to change everything radically. This society has now acquired freedom. It has been freed politically and spiritually dictator of the Soviet Union, freed politically and spiritually. The totalitarian system has been eliminated. Free press, freedom of worship, representative legislatures, and a multi-party system have all become reality. Human rights, human rights are being treated as the supreme principle we are living in a new world. The next day, December 26th, a handful of deputies in the Supreme Parliament of the Soviet Union met, and in a pro forma vote, they dissolved their own parliament of the Supreme Soviet. And after 75 years of the worst tragedy that was perhaps ever inflicted on a major people, the thing was over, and no one had been shot. And it was absolutely staggering. Ninety days later, in March, there's a newspaper in Italy called La Stampa, and it's a big, important newspaper. Michael Gorbachev sent a handwritten column to La Stampa and asked the editor to print it. And then he asked the editor to take his handwritten column and bring it to the Pope as Gorbachev's gift. It was a big article, and once again, I'm going to excerpt it. Gorbachev wrote in La Stampa, speaking of the relationship between he and Karol Wojtyla, Polish Pope, he said, between us, there is a deep feeling of sympathy and understanding. It is not easy to describe the type of understanding that exists between me and Pope Wojtyla, because in a relationship of this kind, enormous importance must be given to an instinctive, perhaps intuitive, and certainly personal element. In the thought of this Pope, I have always appreciated, above all, the spiritual content. Can you believe that? The endeavor to contribute to the creation of a new civilization in the world. He is also a Slav, and that contributed to our mutual understanding. But the spiritual agreement which exists between us represents something larger, 
than our shared Slavic heritage. Today, it is possible to say that everything that happened in Eastern Europe would not have been possible without the presence of this pope. Absolutely stunning. The next day, the editor of La Stampa took it over to the pope and said, Gorbachev wants you to have the hand written. And he gave it to him. And the day after that, La Stampa had a little tiny article, front page, talking about the way the pope reacted to what Gorbachev has written. And he said, the pope said this. This ran in La Stampa, March 4th of 1992. It is true. There was something instinctive between us, as if we had already known each other. And I know why that was. Our meeting had been prepared by Providence. Now, I'm going to close on, that was the way, aspects of the way, that extraordinary situation in the world ended. One or two little things that happened after that. Remember, this was 91, 92. In the year 2000, the first year of the new millennium, of the new thousand years, the Pope, John Paul II, made the decision to beatify two of the little seers, the three little children, Fatima that Mary had spoken to, that Russia would rise as a scourge. But if the Pope dedicated that situation to her, she'd handle it. <coughs> the Pope went to Fatima on May 13th, the anniversary of Mary's first appearance, the anniversary of the day the Pope was shot and now May 13th, the first May 13th of the new thousand years. And he beatified the two little children. He did something at that point that will sound very unimportant. It's really very important because popes particularly, but all top leaders. They lead by symbol and by substance. Substance is automatic, that's doctrine. Symbol is just exactly what it implies. What the Pope did in Fatima is quite extraordinary. Remember that he was shot. He took the bullet, and the bullet is in the crown of the statue of Mary at Fatima on the exact place where the children said she appeared to talk to her. When he became pope and all the cardinals come up in their time at the Sistine Chapel alone before the election is announced and they all kneel before the pope and they kiss his ring or his hand as a sign of fealty to him the Cardinal of Warsaw. Remember that he was the Cardinal of Krakow, the second city. So he reported to the Cardinal of Warsaw. When the Cardinal of Warsaw came up and knelt before the Polish Pope who was now, the Polish Cardinal who was now Pope, when he took his hand, he took his own Cardinal's ring off and put it on the Pope's hand. And the Pope never had a papal ring for the 25 years of his papacy. He wore as his papal ring the ring of the Cardinal of Warsaw. When he went there on May 13th, he did, of, of the year 2000, which he knew was going to be, was drawing to the end of his, he took off the ring. Remember the bullets in her crown. He took his ring off and he put his ring before her. And now on that statue, there's a little gold chain, if you go there. 
and from the gold chain hangs a ring, and it's the ring of John Paul. So in that statue, in her crown is the bullet, and hanging from her hands is the ring. In the strongest possible symbolic terms, I'm not a theologian, in the strongest possible symbolic terms, John Paul II was saying to humanity, if you want to understand me, if you want to understand what happened, think about Fatima, his bullet, his ring, his whole papacy is that. And what happened in his papacy on the central issue was that. It's been an honor to talk to you. Thank you.